Hey everybody, it's Rachel, Program Director at Strong Towns, and I'm coming here with a special announcement for you all. We are about to kick off our 2023 Locomotive Tour. This is the third time we're doing this. It is a really engaging, in-depth workshop series. Comes live to you every Thursday starting September 14th. We hold these during the lunch hour, 12 p.m. Central. Our hope is that people can tune into one, tune into all of them. We've got eight sessions. They're going to run all the way through November 2nd. So this could be a really cool way for you to learn about a whole bunch of Strong Towns topics, everything from how to turn that strode into a street or road to how to host a neighborhood walk to four tactics for fighting freeways and a whole bunch of other things. We have eight amazing guest speakers who are going to be part of each of those conversations, as well as a Strong Town staff member who's going to bring some Strong Towns expertise. And of course, time for Q&A at the end. Attendees to these don't just get to watch the live event every Thursday, but you also get unlimited access to the recording of it afterwards. And we'll post a bunch of resources. We always do a handy printable guide that kind of walks through the overview of the session. So it's really chock full of resources that you can take into your work to build strong towns in your community. We'd love to see a ton of people attend these. And something new that we're offering this year is a, we're calling it an after party on Fridays after each session. Uh, my colleague Norm is going to be hosting those. And it's just a space to have further discussion about the content that was covered in that session that week. So that's open to anyone who attends and really would encourage you to check that out too. Finally, if you buy our, we call it our round trip ticket, if you grab that, you will also get access to two special pre-recorded episodes, and those are coming to you directly from our national gathering. So whether you attended the gathering and you didn't get to go to these sessions, or you did and you want to see them again, or what I know is the case for a lot of people, you didn't get to go to the gathering and you're a little bit bummed out about that, well, you can watch a recording from two of our most popular sessions at that event, and those include how to use social media to build a movement and create change and uncovering what's wrong with the property tax assessment system and holding local governments accountable. Those are both a bit of a mouthful, but that first one features a bunch of uh, really well-known YouTubers and our own Mike Pasternak, who's our video creator, our well-known YouTuber. And then the second session is two great speakers from Urban 3, Joe Minicozzi and Lanier Haggerty, talking about our ongoing Just Accounting project. Those two sessions are accessible to you only if you buy the round trip ticket, but all of the eight other sessions, you can just grab one for whatever Thursday you're available or grab the round trip if you want to tune into everything. So the round trip ticket is $125 and for Strong Towns members, it's only $100. The individual stop tickets are $25 each and you can find out all this info and grab your tickets at strongtowns.org slash localmotive. That's L-O-C-A-L-M-O-T-I-V-E. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. Oh, and you also get AICP credits for these if that matters to you. So lots to offer. Really would welcome you all to join us for these sessions. Strongtowns.org slash locomotive. All right, now let's get to your show. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. 
everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, we've got on today as a guest, Tristan Cleveland. Tristan is an urban planner, writer, and researcher from Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's with the group Happy City. And I think I once said that Tristan is one of the top five people I'd like to be stuck in an airport with. Uh, he's <laughs> one of the coolest guys I know. I love chatting with him. He's written for Strong Towns. You've seen his work in many places, I'm certain. And he wrote a PhD thesis last year. And I said, dude, you should have been on the podcast a long time ago. Can we chat? And he's like, of course. So now, Tristan, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Long overdue. So happy to be here. Talk a little bit about Happy City, will you? It's interesting because there's the book Happy City and there's the book Strong Downs. And I always get a, a joy whenever I'm on any of these ranking lists because they're usually right next to each other. <laughs> I know you didn't write the book, but I know you are part of the overall conversation yeah. and that That's makes good. me happy. So talk a little yeah. bit about what you all do. Sure. So we actually went under a huge rebranding recently. We used to be Happy City. Now we're Happy Cities. We've gone plural because that's what everyone called us anyways. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the company started because our founder, another Chuck, Charles Montgomery, yeah. wrote this great book, Happy City. And a lot of people I've spoken to who are taking urban planning today took it because they read this book and it just got yes. them so motivated. Um, and the book is really focused on how do you design places, physical places that support all the things that humans need to, to feel happy, to have a high quality of life. So that's social connection, meaning, belonging, sense of control over your environment, um, and, and just environments that are attractive, you know, that, that heal the soul instead of dragging down our day-to-day -day life. And we are a private consultancy. Um, we are a B corporation, so we, we uh, do have responsibility to our values. Often people assume that we're actually a nonprofit because we are so uh, we so put our values forward. You know, we are very very focused on designing complete, healthy communities. Um, and often we're working with governments, but also developers across the world on how to do that. And so people can sometimes think that we must be a nonprofit because we're also involved in research, et cetera, et cetera. But no, we're, we're a, uh, a private consultancy. And it's great because uh, it means we get to work on all kinds of work. In a Canadian context, a Canadian consultancy is practically a nonprofit in some ways, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> to me, what I've always found interesting is that Charles approached things from a this idea of what makes someone happy, fulfilled, and how that comes in with a place. I began this from a position of finance. Like, how do we build cities mm. that actually make financial sense? And I have found like no tension between the work that you do and the work yeah. that we do. Maybe slight nuance on some of the means sometimes or the mm. emphasis, but like actually the outcomes that you all work on and the outcomes that we all advocate for. I've never sensed any tension between them at all, which is a, a fascinating observation. Yeah. So um, I, I need to write a piece on this at some point. You know, we all know that there's no such thing as a panacea, except that there are some panaceas that exist. So walkable, human-friendly design is great for finances, for tax productivity, economic productivity, also for you know social connection and great environments that people feel delighted and enjoy life. It's critical for sustainability. It's critical for health. It's critical for equity, making sure that people can 
access jobs without needing a car. It's critical for so many things. And um, one might naturally start to wonder, are you uh, overselling this? You know, can, can one solution actually do so many things? And I think the reason why one thing can achieve so much is because it's not about one thing that solves a bunch of problems. It's about something that was always there and was taken away. So what we're really talking about is restoring the designing communities around humans. And of course, if you design communities around humans rather than machines, then it's going to lead to a lot of benefits, right? It's, it means we can use our own bodies to go outside and do things without requiring 4,000 ton machines for every single transaction throughout the day. You can think of it by analogy with our health. Uh, you know, sleep also benefits everything across the board, our attention, everything. Uh, same thing with exercise. These are things, sleep and exercise aren't some fancy new solution. It's something we always required. And it's when you take it away that we start seeing all kinds of problems. And when you put it back, it seems to solve all kinds of things at once. It's the same, it's the same kind of issue. We are not shocked when we take the chimpanzee and put them back into the forest, right? That they that they thrive. And we have 99.8% the same DNA as a chimpanzee, the same evolutionary history. We take ourselves out of our habitat and put us in this weird environment. And then we have all these neuroses and struggles and depression and, you know, diabetes, and we can go on and on and on. Exactly. And it is almost, you say a panacea. It sometimes feels so simplistic to me. Mm. When we stand up and say, well, if we just walked a little bit more, if we just <laughs> lived a little bit more like people lived even a hundred years ago, boy, would that have huge impacts. But I don't think we're overselling it, right? No, no, not at all. I mean, the impacts are so massive. I mean, we're talking about what people can or cannot do in every instant of every day of their life. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. Um, so of course it's going to it's going to impact everything. And what we need in in the planning and, and engineering and architecture professions is to take the, this issue more seriously of, of uh, you know, we're, we're an animal, we're an evolved animal. And we need to ask these questions, like, what does this animal need every day of its life? And for so long, designers were just incurious, you know, they would just, they would, they would design these huge buildings with massive blank walls and just assume this will be nice without asking how does the human animal respond when walking down the street with massive blank walls? And, you know, it's just the fact is like biochemically throughout our body, we, we feel stressful in these like blank, empty environments. Or when we have cars driving by us at 80 kilometers an hour, I teach a course in the history of cities. And where I start is the, you know, million or so years that Homo sapiens were evolving from Homo erectus, because it's, it's in that context that you really can understand our needs, how you know, fundamentally a social species we are, uh, what kind of environments we evolve for, you know, visually, physically, and by paying attention to that, we can start to really create environments that that make our lives better instead of dragging us down each day. Okay, I don't want to get too off topic, but you, you, every <laughs> we time we haven't even I, started, and we're going. I know off we haven't even stopped. <laughs> you always prompt me to do this, so. I have this thing that I do in my brain where if aliens came down and abducted humans, 
Like, let's say they came the same way that we've gone to the to the forest and grabbed chimpanzees and brought them back and put them in our zoos, right? The aliens are going to come down and they're going to abduct humans and they're going to bring them to wherever and they're going to recreate human habitat so that these humans can thrive. What would that look like if we came down and they looked at the way we live today and they said, well, we're going to rebuild uh, you know, these suburban lots and suburban setbacks and these wide streets, and we'll give them cars to drive around in. We'll do it here on our other planet, right? And then we'll come and walk by and stare at them. They yeah. would get a very different form of human, a form of human that would not thrive the same way as if they took that same people and put them in a walkable neighborhood, a walkable community, a, a place where, you know, they interacted with each other on a day-to-day basis. It's an abstract experiment, I recognize, but I think it helps us think about who we are and, you know, looking at ourselves in kind of a, a 10,000 foot way, how we actually thrive as people, right? Which is when I went to engineering school, the whole premise was we want to design systems that help humans thrive, that help humans become who they are. Uh, it feels like we've designed the exact opposite in so many ways. You know, what's really fascinating is that many listeners uh, might live in, in suburban communities and they would say, actually, you know, I, I love my home. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and, and people really do love their homes. And so let's start by by recognizing that. Um, and let's also recognize that there are downsides. Uh, so in my thesis, I really found that uh, a lot of suburban residents, while they love their home, they hate the commercial centers where they go shop. So these huge places with huge asphalt, no local shops to speak of, all big box stores, blank walls, cheap buildings, uh, no no main street to be proud of. They don't love that. They don't love the long commute. And often when people buy homes, they're not really pricing in how much that long commute and the unpredictability of traffic is going to affect their quality of life. It's legit that they really love their homes, right? And right. Um, part of this is is actually explained from an evolutionary perspective too. So suburban homes really respond to some things we need and we evolved to desire without responding to some other things we need. So two things, we we evolved a desire to not use energy if we don't have to, because if you're using energy for no reason on the savanna, you're quickly going to starve because there's there's only so much food and you can't use more energy than the food that's available. Uh, this is uh, David Lieberman makes this argument in the history of the human body and really shows how, you know, like our desire to sit and watch TV today all day is a, a truly sensible evolutionary response. So we've designed these homes where you can sit to do most things and drive to do everything. And that makes sense from a certain perspective. Um, from, a, we, from a human body standpoint, this would be the idea of starve slowly, Right. Like yes. use less energy because then you need less input, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it didn't. We didn't evolve to feel like we need to go out and and exercise every day because there's always useful reasons to do so. Uh, so right. it turns out that we need to design into our communities useful reasons to get out and and be active. It's the sure. same thing with privacy. I haven't seen anyone make this argument in print, so someone needs to write this. But we evolved a need to have privacy as to the extent that we can. And um, we never could have very much because we were so dependent on our larger group. The suburban homes oversupply this need of privacy. And this is interesting because 
when you design communities that are more social and more physically active, we don't do it by forcing people into situations they don't like, like forcing people to be physically active when they don't want to, or forcing people into being less private than they want to be. It's uh, you you make exercise useful and desirable. So respecting that that evolutionary desire to like only exercise when it's actually useful to do so. And on privacy, you have to design, for example, porches in a way where the porch isn't too close to the street so that you don't feel like you're up in everyone's business and people can read what you're reading or, or look at your food. Uh, you're, it needs to be far enough from the street, about 10 to 15 feet, so that you can ignore people walking by if you want. You still have, have your privacy out there. But you have enough exposure that you actually can chat with people who are walking by. So uh, just to summarize my uh, my point there, I hope that all made sense. But the point is that uh, suburbs are oversupplying some of our evolutionary needs without properly taking into account other needs we also have. That's really fascinating. Let me ask you this, and I'm I'm not being trite here. Are you a PhD now? Is that what the... That's right, yeah. These, so you you got your PhD yeah, that's, Congratulations. Uh, that's exciting. Thank you. Do I have to call you Dr. Tristan now? Is that... I, I won't accept anything else. I'll just ignore you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. My, my students, maybe. I'll tell you something. It just feels like another project I did. And so it feels really strange to put PhD in front of my name. Um, that's cool. I'm happy for you. Congratulations. It's a big, it's a big accomplishment. The paper that you wrote was very impressive. We're going to link to it so people can download it and look at it. I want to get into this idea of tackling the challenge of auto-centric suburbia and what we do with it. Because I do think that this is going to be even more so than taking urban spaces and trying to make them better. This idea of taking suburban spaces, spaces that were designed exclusively for the automobile and somehow making them walkable or making them a more complete place, or, or as you you just said, responding to more of those evolutionary needs in that framework mm-hmm. is a massive, massive challenge. Can can you talk just a little bit? I've got a bunch of questions about it, but maybe just give a, 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 a brief thought on, well, what were, you, what were you trying to accomplish with this PhD thesis that you put together? What was the thing you were delving into? So like all good studies, it started with a very honest question, something I didn't know. So in my home city of Halifax, there was this suburban Main Street. It's called Main Street from the 1970s. That was just all strip malls and parking lots, very low value land. And the local business improvement district there, the local business group, was frustrated that the you know buildings were getting decrepit and really wanted to revitalize things. And so they worked with the city and they got this great new plan in place, great new zoning that allowed, you know, eight-story buildings and mixed-use buildings and would allow any developer who wanted to build there to multiply the value of the land. And so I was expecting when this passed that a ton of people would rush in and start building and that you would see a totally new Main Street in just a few years. Instead, we, we did see a few buildings, but man, it was not a flood. You know, it's been moving very slowly. And I honestly did not understand why that was true. Around the same time, the mayor of Oakville in Ontario took me of a tour of Oakville, very kind of him. And he um, showed me these uh, areas that had been zoned also for like high density mixed use growth and nothing was happening. One of them, the Uptown Core, which ended up becoming one of my case studies in the thesis, there was a Walmart where there was supposed to be a downtown. And so this was not explained in my planning education. In my planning education, the primary tool 
that urban planners use to transform communities is zoning and plans. And all these places had zoning and plans and nothing was happening. And so I took a look at four case studies of suburban retrofits, two in Canada, two in the United States. And I decided I was going to interview politicians, developers, planners, engineers, community activists, everyone involved from all sides, government, industry, everything, to try to understand why this was so hard and how it could be made easier. Because this is perhaps the most important challenge that cities face in the 21st century. It's, it's hard to think of a bigger one, right? Yeah, We're getting yeah. pretty good in some places at revitalizing our downtowns. I have a lot of hope for our downtowns across North America. People have been streaming back in. They're doing great. It's our inner suburbs where the bigger challenges and the bigger opportunity, because we simply cannot provide enough healthy, good housing for everyone who needs it in the existing downtowns. Otherwise, we'll place every square meter of land with a thousand story towers and we'll, you know, at the extreme, destroy what people love about those places, right? Or failing that, housing prices become so expensive that the average person can't live there, which leads to all kinds of problems. So we really, if we're going to tackle health and climate change and so much more, we just need to expand the land area where it is possible for people to walk for their daily needs. And that requires a really fundamental transformation of large scale suburban areas. So I, I hope that I'm doing this thesis at a strategic time. Cities for a few decades now have been tinkering with this and trying to make it happen, but we're gonna have to start doing it at a way larger scale. So I hope that I can offer some practical lessons on how to why there are barriers to making this happen and how to overcome them. It's interesting as I hear you talking again, I get this intersection of your work and our work because I yeah. I look at these same places and I say they're not financially viable. They need to become so. In order to do so, they have to overcome their auto-centric nature and become financially more productive. As yes. I'm reading your stuff, as I'm going through it, I'm seeing the same kind of thing. So there's a design issue and a political issue, and both of them have different kind of connotations. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the design issue first? Why, why is it so hard from a design standpoint to take an autocentric place and give it a different DNA, make it a walkable place? Yeah, yeah. So, and when we're talking about design, we're talking about design, transportation decisions of, of tens yes. of thousands of people and, and of the economics of where developers want to build, right? So, yes. Um, the, the fact all those is, things, all those things tied together in yeah, the, 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 the physical, there's a physical layout issue and then there's a, a cultural political issue, right? Exactly. exactly. And, and the two have separate tracks that intersect and mingle. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So why is it so hard to attract development to these places that are a more pedestrian friendly, financially yeah. productive form of development? Well, when you got big asphalt parking lots and big wide roads and everybody drives to do everything and driving ends up becoming the only viable when you, when you accommodate everyone driving everywhere, you make driving the only viable way to get everywhere. And in that context, when everyone's driving and no one's walking, biking, or taking transit, why would anyone want to build a building that faces a sidewalk and not a parking lot? 
right? Everyone wants to cater to the car when they're building a new building in that context. So to convince developers that they should invest millions of dollars in a new building that is going to face the sidewalk and not have any off-street parking there or have very little, you have to convince them that there is going to be a fundamental transformation of that environment, so fundamental that people are going to start walking and biking in this place where walking and biking are just terrible choices, right? right? It's a bit of a collective action problem because if you got 20 developers, all the landowners in an area, if they all invested at once and built these pedestrian-friendly buildings at once, then they would create that environment, right? You would suddenly have lots of, of shops on the street for people to walk to. Those buildings would create a uh, attractive streets with enclosure that would feel comfortable walking on. And you would also have the critical mass of homes to provide the customers that can actually walk to those shops. But no one wants to be the first person to take that risk because if you have that isolated building facing an empty sidewalk, you're going to have failed retail and you're also going to struggle to sell units upstairs because there's no amenities nearby at that stage to justify people living in a, in a small apartment. And uh, you also don't have the convenient parking access, which makes it a really unattractive choice. That's kind of the, the obvious uh, chicken and egg problem. There's also a bit of more of a, a subtle issue, which I only really understood later in the research, which is that um, attractive mixed-use buildings cost more, right, per square foot. So if you're going to build a big Walmart, that is a very cheap thing to do. It's just a big warehouse building or like any kind of single-use building, right? So a lot of suburban communities have big single-use apartment towers. So that's a tower, but it's like a cheap version of a tower. Um, there's there's nothing different going on on the ground floor. Often they actually have parking garages on the ground floor and blank walls. So if you want to convince developers to create a building that's going to create a desirable street, they need to be willing to invest enough to have an attractive facade, retail on the ground floor, if not retail, then townhouses or something else going on. It's just this like extra level of design, which simply costs more. It doesn't need to be prohibitive, but it's not the cheapest option. And for that to work, you need to convince people who are renting your apartment units or who are taking over retail space to either pay more per square foot or accept smaller units, or usually both. And the downtown units are a bit smaller, a bit more expensive. Also, life tends to be cheaper, so it pencils out, and ideally. But this, again, is this collective action problem. If everyone builds these new buildings, then you will create the kind of desirable environment where it makes sense for people to accept these trade-offs. Okay, my unit's going to be a bit smaller. I'm going to be paying a bit more, but I've I have tons of jobs available nearby, so I'm more likely to have a higher income. It costs way less for me to get places. Only one person in my family needs to have a car, or we can live car-free, right? You know, there's all these amenities nearby. It's a, a desirable, high-value environment. Um, well, it's really hard to convince a developer to, again, invest millions of dollars in this more expensive building when it's surrounded by parking lots, you know, big roads, just just a undesirable place. It's a really bad bet to make that anyone would want to pay any more for, for those units in that context. So again, it's a matter of convincing them we are going to so fundamentally transform this place quickly enough that you can make that investment. And this actually is going to be a high value environment where those buildings are going to make financial sense. Okay. 
I have a ton of questions, but I feel like where you ended that gets you to the second part of the thesis, which deals with the cultural and political. Because if you're yes. going to get, if you're going to overcome this collective action problem, you got to be all in, right? Like you got to be 100% deeply committed to a transformation. Exactly. I've said, you know, we need suburban lobotomies. Like you, you need to become a completely different person. In a practical sense, that feels really, really hard to do, like really hard to do. Talk about the second part of it. Sure. And then I want to circle back and fill in some of the gaps. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, interestingly, this PhD was a political science PhD. I'm a certified urban planner. I'm a practicing urban planner, but this was a political science PhD. And that's important because re retrofitting the suburbs is a political problem. <laughs> <laughs> you can have the best designs in the world, but if the you know often completely car-dependent residents of suburban areas refuse that, or even in, in a city that includes a downtown, if, if the jurisdiction includes a downtown, still the majority of voters in most places are suburban, right? So it becomes very, very difficult to propose high-density development inside people's communities, to reduce the sides of roads, uh, to even in some contexts, uh, introducing local shops and services is extremely controversial, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been exposed to a lot of people in my life who said it's just impossible, right? You know, people you know aren't going to accept any change whatsoever. What I found in my thesis is that's not true. There are opportunities. The biggest opportunity is redeveloping these, uh, you know, commercial landscapes that I was talking about these 1960s, 70s highways, strodes surrounded by big parking lots and, and big box stores. No one loves those places. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. They don't inspire pride. You don't feel good when you visit there. People do love some of the stores there. You know, you feel good when you're in a McDonald's, but um, there uh, is very, tends to be very little opposition to building homes in those places where no one currently lives or uh, creating a, a main street there that car dependent residents could go visit. There is, however, huge opposition to uh, redeveloping the single-family suburbs themselves. And this is, a, this is a problem because the easiest, easiest, easiest place to retrofit the suburbs would be in those existing neighborhoods. Because think about it, if you could, you know, fix some of those cul-de-sacs, so put in a few streets here or there where people could walk through, or at least walking paths, and put in uh, a local main street, some medium-level density with transit, and a few businesses, then you don't have to deal with a lot of those chicken and egg problems I was talking about. You right. already have the residents, right? You can have a business. A lot of I've seen in suburban neighborhoods, people having an informal corner store in their garage because there's such a need for local commerce that's not being hey, met, right? So can I say this? Can I say this back to you and make sure that we're on the same page? Yeah. It is far easier to add modest commercial to an existing neighborhood. Yeah. Than it is to add enough residents to make a big, massive commercial center viable in a place that is uh, under redevelopment. Yeah. So when we were off mic, I, I said to you that it's like terraforming Mars, right? Like yeah, coming into yeah. these like massive strodes and trying to create a people friendly place where there's enough people walking for people, pedestrian oriented retails to succeed. You're just fundamentally transforming the place. It's, it's like trying to create human conditions on Mars. 
Whereas if you want to put a few shops in an existing suburban community, it might help to add a few triplexes, you know, Um, but you don't have to fundamentally transform the place. You can use those existing sidewalks. The streets might be a bit wide, but they're like, they're nice to walk on, you know, they're They're close. Yeah. Yeah. And generally those places are impossible to rezone because of political reasons. So uh, the politics already knocks off the, the biggest opportunity we have, uh, Levine, what's his first name? Levine has said that the only thing harder than Diamond is R1 zoning. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that's that's starting to change too. So a few places have eliminated R1 zoning in, in some communities. So there's potential there. And in Surrey, I, I came across these uh, communities that had uh, fought tooth and nail to kill walkable plans in the 70s who are now actually over 70% of residents supported adding six-story buildings inside their community. Wow. So, yeah. And the thing yeah. that makes that possible, though, is that their economy, uh, their their land values had stagnated, and so they started looking for a um, new uh, way to get their land values going again, and so suddenly redevelopment becomes more attractive to them. Another thing a local planner told me was that there's a bit of a switch that happens. People totally oppose... Uh, changing their suburban community. But once it becomes obvious that change is going to happen, they suddenly want as much density as possible so that they can sell their homes for more. Um, yeah. So it, it, we are starting to see just a trickle of of that kind of change happening, but it's it's still quite rare. So let me bring it back, though, to the political issues that surround terraforming Mars, because what we find is that not all suburban residents are identical. And they are, can be convinced by different arguments and different things are salient to them. So for some car-dependent suburban residents, having any density nearby at all is antithetical and they will oppose it tooth and nail. Uh, whereas other ones say, okay, my community is not going to change. This is going to bring more revenue to pay for the services that we want. We don't have enough libraries. We don't have enough amenities. This will help pay for those things. We have too much traffic. And again, this can go both ways. Some people say, add denser homes, that's going to create more traffic. Other people say, uh, building denser homes near transit and stores is the only solution to traffic. So different suburban residents are are convinced by one argument or the other, and they they can switch, right? So it matters really getting into the details of, of these things. Same thing with parking. Some suburban residents say, if you don't create enough parking, this is going to be terrible. It's going to spill over into local communities, et cetera. Others say, oh, that's great. If you don't build enough parking, then fewer people are going to drive and it's going to mean better traffic. So I saw I saw every side of these things. So it is possible. Actually, suburban residents can become huge supporters of high-density growth. We saw this in downtown Kendall in Florida. We saw this in Tyson's, Virginia, one of the places I looked at. We saw in all four of them. Another one was Surrey, British Columbia. Another one was the Uptown Core in Ontario. And in all cases, you had suburban residents who were like, yeah, actually, this solves a lot of problems we have and my community stays the same. And whereas other ones say, uh, no, no, I moved to the suburbs to get away from downtown. I don't want anything that smells like downtown near me. One, one community opposed even building sidewalks because they were afraid that would bring traffic and, and people to their community. And the trick is basically to recognize that some people will be convinced to send out these messages, find the people who are convinced and and work with them on 
making the redevelopment happen and uh, manage the the opposition to the extent you can. But um, you you have to work with those suburban residents that can, that support it because there's no downtown residents in a lot of these suburbs. You, you, you have to work with their interests that makes this make sense. And in Surrey, you know, once they got redevelopment going, the mayor had 73% support, huge support, because she was able to restart development there. And that's in a suburb that was, you know, almost completely car dependent. And they loved the idea of attracting like a real downtown. So this is, that's a really encouraging message. Yeah. This is possible. There's a version of this that can be actually extremely attractive if we if we highlight the right benefits and use the right language and just, you know, underline for people like this could really improve your life. So you had a line of discourse in your thesis about path dependency. Yeah. And how the the more autocentric you are, the more autocentric you tend to become, the more yeah. walkable you are, the more walkable reinforcing, because there's a there's a reinforcing mechanism there. Uh-huh. It feels like this gets us in a position where the outcome tends to be binary, right? Like yeah. I either want to be very walkable or very auto-oriented. And I'm struggling to grasp the the transition point, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we're very auto-oriented, if we're going to terraform Mars, what is it that gets us to, in a sense, switch from a zero to a one, like become that other side of the binary because, yeah. and this is where I think we've at Strong Town struggled with this. It really is not an incremental kind of thing to take that six lane strode lined with parking lots and make it into something that is human. It is kind of an all in, almost top down, fully committed kind of thing. And even then, that seems like a big, a big risk and a big, a big gamble. Yeah. Tyson's to me is one of those like big gambles, right? I'm interested in in your thoughts about how we talk a little bit about that binary, that yeah. self-reinforcing nature. And yeah. then how do we arrest that feedback loop? Is it just big or is there a way to do this that essentially nudges us along as opposed to all in all at once? And I'll, I'll answer in that order. So to shift momentum from one to the other you start by gaining the support of the car dependent residents themselves but an important point i make in the thesis is that that only gets you so far because while car dependent residents and we haven't talked about the institutional issues like engineers etc while an engineer who's worked their whole life on car or in infrastructure might support walkability to some extent they tend not to support it in full the, the biggest issue for both residents and engineers is the size of roads, right? So if you really right. wanted to create a walkable community, you need to make those streets smaller. They bring them down to a human scale that people are willing to cross with their babies, you know, mm-hmm. with their families, uh, let their children walk to school. You know, that's, that's a very different kind of place. And right. that is extremely difficult to convince car dependent residents of. So I make the point in the thesis, and this is uh, somewhat hypothetical, but if we wanted to complete the transformation, basically what we'll need is to have enough walkable residents, so enough residents that depend for their daily needs on walking, biking, and trans- transit, 
to live there, to start to become a political force in themselves so they can start to demand full walkability. So car dependent residents get you to a point and then to complete the process of change, you would need walkable residents that that don't have mixed incentives, but fully support completing the transformation. Let me let me give you a strong towns term. We talk about this as a culture of biking and walking. Yeah. Right. You need, and, you and, need and that's, that to instill itself and be, start reinforcing itself on its own terms. Uh-huh. And then that becomes the political force that changes the strode and changes the obvious difficult things that are hard to overcome. That's right. That's right. And that is, I, I called it hypothetical because I, I'm not aware of any of these retrofits that have fully succeeded yet. You know, all, all of them are halfway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of taking a snapshot of this early in the process. The ones that have succeeded are um, the uh, blank slate redevelopments like Baldwin Park in, um, hope I'm not getting that wrong, in, in Orlando, Florida. A lot of those blank slate ones also failed. Most of them haven't been that successful, but a few of them have been great because they can just, you know, build out a walkable community all at once and, and get the critical mass. But for these places where you're trying to terraform Mars, um, we haven't seen a complete transition yet. And hopefully so, it will happen in our lifetime. But but you're suggesting for people out there listening who live in suburban places or places dominated by the automobile that want to become more walkable, bikeable, want to want to go on that path, you got to start changing the culture before you're going to see, I mean, you can see pockets of success, but you're not going to see the transformation you want until you've got neighbors, friends, people up the street, biking and walking, where that is like a routine course of how people live their days. And you got to figure out how to do that without the big transformation first. So let's talk about the the transformation, because you, you mentioned earlier that strong towns central to the strong towns message is that Mm -hmm. it's better to change cities incrementally rather than coming in and trying to just like knock everything down and redo it all at once and part of my argument is that you have to do a certain amount of knocking down and rebuilding but i i am a strong believer in incrementalism i am a strong strong towns person and so how do i how do i yeah, reconcile, reconcile that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I reconcile that? So in Fargo, I was I was mentioning this to you when we ran into each other. The metaphor we use at Happy Cities is of cultivation, of growing an orchard, a, an apple tree. Every apple tree is distinct and grows incrementally, and you can't manage an apple tree top down. You know, you can't zone an apple tree's branches to right. tell it where it should grow its next twigs. You know, it, it does it on its own, self-organizing. And cities are self-organizing that way. And a lot of our work, we have to become humbler and follow how cities are growing and enable them to continue uh, growing incrementally by their own logic, just like an apple tree. That said, apple trees also have certain fundamental requirements. These include soil, nutrition, manure, water, sunlight, right? If you don't right. provide any of those, the, the apple tree fails. So if you had an apple tree that had, had you know, the soil it was just something was terribly wrong with it or had gone completely dry, you'd have to intervene in a pretty big way to get that soil back to a place where it could support an apple tree. That's basically what I'm saying with the suburban retrofits. When you're terraforming Mars, you need to intervene at first to get things to a place where you could start the transformation. Once you have the first structural requirements in place, 
then you can start to allow change to happen in a more incremental way. So let's use Surrey as a as a concrete example. Uh, I think we need a vivid example right about now. They put in this great new plan in 1991 that allowed higher density growth. And they also built a SkyTrain in 1994 right to downtown Vancouver. So this is an elevated, high-frequency, high-speed uh, I've train. I've written on it. Yeah. Oh, have you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Nothing happened. Ten years. There was right. one office building that was built, and that was it. And usually people assume that transit is enough, but but it's not. You had, like I said, uh, massive parking lots, ugly buildings. Please excuse me, Siri. Big, wide roads. You know, it just wasn't a very loved place, and it was not a place where people wanted to invest. So um, the way that Surrey got over this 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 barrier was to invest like crazy in one single block of the city directly next to the transit station. So this is Diane Watts, the, the mayor of Surrey, uh, led this, what I think, a brilliant strategy to initiate transformation. So in that one place, she uh, built a new city hall. They got mm -hmm. funds and built a new library. They created an arm's length development corporation that could partner with developers. And together they built this massive mixed use tower with a hotel in it and offices. And all of this was one block away from the one office building that had been built, which included a, a new university campus. And all of this was directly next to the SkyTrain station. And they built a new plaza, public space, and they built a new street to reduce the size of the block. And so in that one place, it suddenly became very plausible that actually here, we would see the kind of transformation. Suddenly, it, it made financial sense to developers that we could um, invest here and there will be people walking streets. There'll be a critical mass of people outside that we can open up retail on the ground floor and it will succeed. And there's enough here, just barely, that we can have those slightly higher cost mixed use buildings that, that people actually want to rent out and buy. And if I do this, other developers are also going to invest, which is going to make my investment that much more successful. Uh, and it starts to take off like a snowball. And it did. It snowballed like crazy. And they got 94 major, major, major development applications in, in less than 10 years. And we're talking, you know, developments with like multiple towers in a single development. The, the structural requirements that you have to get in place is, first of all, enough people there. Nothing can happen if there aren't people there outside for some reason. So you have to find any reason, whether it's a library or a city hall or whatever, then you need streets that are reasonably walkable. So you need to make some first investments in those streets and adding new streets to reduce the size of blocks. And you need to improve the safety of those streets. So make some investments in intersections. Oh, on the first note, you need enough people there. One of the best ways to do that is uh, to build higher order transit. So whether you use higher order transit or whatever other strategies, you need to invest enough to bring you up to that minimum critical mass to get things going. And then after that, you can adopt a much more incremental approach. Now Surrey is in a position, a beautiful position where they can incrementally make small investments in their community, take the strong towns approach, identify the next smallest problem, fix it, and allow the community to continuously get better. And it can become more and more and more walkable over time. But for that strong towns approach to be possible, you had to get you know the soil in place first. So I had a couple of rapid questions for you. The first one, I want to speak 
for the people who are anti-zoning, the people who would say, if we just get rid of zoning, the market will provide us with walkable communities because that's what people want. I don't agree with that. I feel like your thesis actually supports my point of view that <laughs> there's a reason why auto-centric places will continue to be auto-centric without some type of intervention. How would you respond to someone who said, let's look at that suburb. It's got the Walmart and the big parking lot and the suburban cul-de-sacs, but if we just got rid of zoning, it would thicken up and become a walkable place. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the likelihoods of, of that actually occurring? Zoning at least is not enough. So getting rid of zoning or creating better zoning that allows the stuff we want is not enough. Mm-hmm. Urban planners or whoever's doing the equivalent job of, of managing the city, we need new skills and in actually intervening in the economic logic of communities to make it possible to attract the kind of growth that we want. And the other risk with getting rid of zoning completely, well, I don't want to get fully into the question of of whether allowing too much density could uh, lead to a a flood and drought situation and some of the economic risks of that, and also makes it might make it just politically impossible in a lot of places. So there are some reasons that you might want zoning. Uh, let me say this: I do not know what approach we should be taking with zoning. I don't think anybody does. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a, a really difficult question in our field because I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a zoning model that that really makes sense for, because there's this basic tension of trying to manage top down a, a bottom up system. We, we want some kind of regulation that allows growth where it needs, where it's needed, where the, for allow the city to grow by its own logic. And we, technology has made it possible to build these, you know, hundred story towers and, and massive parking lots that um so we we probably need some way of managing growth i just want to admit <laughs> that i i've been trying to figure this out for years and i really hope i find a solution before i die yeah i'm with you in the sense that you know my graduate degrees in urban planning and it, it's pretty hard to go through an urban planning program and not come out thinking that with the right zoning code, you could not only make every community perfect, but you could solve world peace and cure cancer and you know <laughs> do everything else. You just get got to get the zoning right. And you know, it it took me a few years in the profession to recognize how absurd that was. But I don't yeah. know as there is a I feel like without in the absence of culture, and I'm not trying to become like a culture warrior here. I'm trying to say something about the the biking and walking culture versus the auto. If you go into a place that has an auto-centric culture, it's hard to see you being successful building biking and walking type of buildings, even if you are allowed by the zoning code. Just mm. because there's 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 not going to be the demand for it. You're imposing something that the culture is not asking for, right? Yeah. And let me just say that, you know, when we say culture, Let's keep in mind that design has an enormous impact on culture. You take the exact same people and put them in a place with great streets and great bike lanes, and they're going to find themselves walking and biking because it's delightful and easy. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we have to, we have to change that. I think when you say culture, you're talking about people's daily habits and their, their assumptions about what's needed to, to live life. Right. And and that can really change if you change the context. 
there's a yin and right. yang there, right? Like, I mean, if I have this expectation that I'm going to be able to drive, it, I have to drive to get my groceries. I have to drive to get my kids to school. And that's my expectation. That's the water that I swim in, right? It's really hard to go in with a, a, a walkable vision for that and change it in a big way. Yeah, exactly. But it, so, and, and the solution yeah, to go. that is people need to see examples firsthand yeah. Yeah. of yeah. places where a different lifestyle is possible. A lot of the big proponents of walkability in suburbs are people who visit Europe, you know? Right. Um, you often use the example of Disneyland. I, like everyone who visits Disneyland, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, think it, this could be your community, right? Um, the more successful walkable communities there are, the more people see that firsthand and say, you know, <laughs> a lot of my assumptions about what a community needs or how life has to work, maybe this could be a bit different, you know? Um, well, well, don't you think, Virginia, I was going to say, Tristan, don't, don't you think that that's what happened in the 1950s? People were used to a certain way of living and then like, hey, there's this suburb, like check this out. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay, that that is completely different culture, a completely different yeah. style of living, a completely different place to live in. And, and I'll, I'll take that. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, they, they were, they were sadly, you know, given a false promise, right? Well, because in the 1950s, those yes. suburbs were, you know, there was little traffic, get downtown in no time, yes. very convenient, easily drive everywhere. Everyone moving there could afford a car at that time. But the same human psychology and impulse, right? And and that's what you're really, I I feel like where your thesis is like really, really strong is this acknowledgement of the human, the human impulse. And that it's one thing for planners to deal with zoning codes and density requirements. It's another thing to go out and actually deal with humans in a place. And exactly, if you don't do that, you're not going to make change. It's not going to work. Yeah. So, so much of what actually impacts what's viable politically or institution mm-hmm. in cities is people's not even their deeply held beliefs but their um intuitions right, right? when you when you right. spend your life like you said driving once a week to get a full car of groceries your intuitions say i mean that's the only viable way to live right and when you drive exactly. everywhere with your kids like look we're gonna have to have enough parking for everyone to drive and we're gonna have to widen these roads for everyone to drive for everything they do because if you've lived for decades like that um your intuition like everything else just seems like wacky urbanist talking crazy talk right yeah whereas if you've you know if you um folks who like went to vienna for a few years and and during college suddenly they have a different intuition they move back to their suburb and they're like you know it doesn't need to be this way one of the points I make in the thesis is that we need to uh, shift people's thinking at the level of intuitions. And uh, I really do think you can only do that through examples, which is why as we have more successful examples of walkable places, it becomes easier and easier to build more successful examples of walkable places. And this starts to reinforce themselves because more people see it somewhere close to home. I mentioned Arlington a minute ago. Uh, Arlington had this really successful uh, revitalization of their uh, downtown core in the since the 70s. Tyson's Virginia is close to there. And uh, Arlington started uh, to sound like a four-letter word for people. They were so frustrated that they were being so much more successful than them. And so that was a huge motivator for their own transformation, right? And so I, I suspect that this will happen more and more. I love that in the uptown core in Oakville, 
this uh, developer was working on the retrofit, I took a bunch of counselors and city staff on a flight on, on a tour of walkable communities in, in Boston and Seaside, Florida and other yep, uh, great yep. places and just showed them firsthand, like, you know, your standards say that, you know, if we did this, it would lead to disaster. And look at the street. Isn't the street lovely? Like, is this really something we're trying to prevent? And it affected them at the level of intuitions and made much more possible. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, this is this is my last question question. <laughs> There's a certain critique that I have of the suburban retrofit where we make the downtown into a a lifestyle amenity or a a, a, a museum for the the autocentric people who want to live out on the edge of it. When we do this, we have to build the parking ramps. We have to build uh-huh. all the things. And 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 I see that because again, going from zero to one, making that binary transition is really hard. So when you're yeah. when you're in the process, you somehow exactly. have to accommodate the people around you. Yeah. But does that get us stuck in this thing that is its own, you know, under glass kind of hermetically sealed entity that we visit? and not really spill over into the the neighborhood. Have you struggled with that part of it at all? And and if so, how how do we how should we think about overcoming that? So for people new to strong towns, strong towns has this wonderful idea of a strode, which uh, you know, a street is a, is a place designed for people walking and for local businesses and a road is is a place for high speed travel to distant places and when you try to mix those you get these um, terrible amalgams like a, a futon um, that that don't work well. You mix high-speed driving with people trying to cross the street to uh, big box stores or whatever, and you get uh, lots of accidents. High-speed driving with people trying to make turns, which also leads to lots of accidents. So they're they're both dangerous, but you can't actually drive very fast. They, they just don't work well for anyone, and they're deeply unattractive places. What we're talking about in a lot of these retrofits are strode at the level of communities. Yeah. You know, when you get halfway, I call the thesis urban intercurrence, which is this extremely academic way. <laughs> so intercurrence is, you know, where <laughs> I haven't brought up the term yet. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two rivers meet each other and you get choppy water from currents going in different directions. And, and yeah. uh, what I was tr- trying to say is that a lot of these retrofits are in this middle place where they have fundamentally contradictory forces um, and they're trying to navigate that and they're full of contradictions as a result. So you get the, uh, the in some places, big parking requirements, which totally undermines our ability to build like high density housing. The, the biggest issue, it's very hard to make streets narrower. So you got these big roads driving right through the center of places where we're trying to promote people walking into transit and local shops and uh, totally undermines them. And you get a lot, a lot, a lot of like half-ass. I, I couldn't use this language in the academic thesis, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it is, we're all friends. Yeah. The issue is is really half-ass design. Right? Yeah, all half-ass, these half right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where, where, you know, um, on one street, you you might have a tight turning radius, but on one street over, the turning radius allows people to drive at you know sixty kilometers an hour, <laughs> or you have a, a a slip lane, or you um, don't have pedestrian islands for a big road because of some rule around trucks being able to turn. And so uh, the experience of people walking instead of being you know uh, 
consistently making progress, uh, we're taking, let's say, two steps forward and one step back, which which is terrible, right? Because it, you know, these places need to achieve this like big critical mass of, of development of pedestrian friendly growth. And if we keep undermining that by implementing the designs that discourage people from walking, discourage people from taking transit, then we're making all these major government investments while undermining those investments. So that, that middle place is, is hugely uh, concerning. And um, I, I think uh, there, there's a number of solutions for this. One is one we've spoken about having more people locally who experience the value of being on the walk places and who start to demand something more. And um, it's actually, I think, quite rare today for walkable residents to demand high quality walkability in a very forthright, you know, political manner. It, it happens in downtowns, but I don't know of many examples in-, in um, Happens in big cities, a, yeah. It happens in big cities, yeah. But we need to expand that like identity group. And yeah. Cut that out. But I know what you mean. You're, you're not saying like, this is your, you know, this is your political identity. You're saying, again, I'll, I'll go back to the culture of biking and walking. Yeah. When there's a culture of biking and walking, and you're going to expand the strode through the middle of town, people show up and say, well, you're, you're going to kill people. Like you're wrecking my business. You're wrecking yeah. my home. You're destroying my neighborhood. And yeah. And they need to like be exposed to those arguments and yes. say, you know, I actually can ask for something better in my community and just make that more common. So that's yes. a really huge thing to, to demand excellence rather than halfway there. The other thing is at a national level to um, improve standards. So in the United States, Ashto, the big, you know, standards organization, in 2018 recognized this concept of context, which basically says that uh, different standards should apply in different kinds of places at a, a road. Yeah, in a shocking. Area. <laughs> shocking. Shocking. Yeah, yeah. 2018 <laughs> finally recognized uh, that, that uh, arterial downtown and an arterial going through the wilderness should, yeah. might be, should be designed differently. And they're like, talk about getting halfway there to use polite language. They they still recommend seventy kilometer an hour roads and eight lanes wide in the middle of downtown. So yeah, we got some work to do. <laughs> but you can imagine if if we just divided things between you know machine centered and people centered places, you know some places like ports and highways need to be machine centered. You accommodate pedestrians to the extent possible, but okay, we'll accept this is for high speeds here. And then in our our downtowns and our suburban complete communities. Our transit-oriented places and rural villages uh, here, it's people-centered, and we use just a different set of standards there. And um, that would be so huge because right now it's 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 crazy making that often the biggest barrier that communities face is not the political opposition outside government, but their own engineering staff who says, "No, no, you you're not allowed to do that because of this." Oh yeah, standards book that was originally developed for highways in the 40s and 50s. Or uh, the state departments of transportation who came of age implementing the national highway program. Um, you know, it's it's just crazy making that they would be undermining investments of democratically elected governments by saying, no, no, you have to prioritize high speed driving in the middle of this walkable community directly next to this major transit investment you made. That just shouldn't be happening. We have to get beyond that. You know? Right, right. So there's many things I find fascinating about you and, and your work. 
I get a lot of people who send me their theses and, and their reports and all this. And like, can we have a podcast? And I'm just like, ah, you have a PhD, Dr. Tristan. You're also a practitioner. And I do find that that is to me one of the, it's rare, it's unique, but it also gives, I think your research and your insights and the things that you've uncovered some grounding that we don't often get from academia because you're out there doing this kind of work day after day. Last thing, I just want to give you a sh- chance to talk about before we uh, we started the recording, you said, hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm really proud of it. And I, I keep wanting to call it the Blue Oyster Estates. It's Blue Ocean <laughs> Estates. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Blue Ocean That's Estates. So- Dude, just you should yesterday. come to me for all your naming conventions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More cowbell. Um, <laughs> exactly. Just last week, we got the suburban development approved in Halifax. And uh, I just, you know, to me, it's really exciting because this is in the middle of a suburban community. And actually, I should say, all the cases I looked at of suburban retrofits were places that were trying to create new downtowns. So with like huge tall towers. And something I didn't cover in my thesis is like, okay, well, how about suburbs who would like a four-story main street, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think we we need to get a lot better at that too. And so this this development uh, that just got approved is just five acres with, you know, a four-story apartment building with some ground-level commerce next to high-frequency transit with townhouses in the middle, all designed to support social connections. So big porches separated from the street a bit but not too far, like we discussed earlier, a, a public square in the center for locals to like see each other regularly so that they can get to know each other. Um, slow speed, narrow streets. We have a cul-de-sac because of the nature of the place. And instead of having a massive asphalt turning circle, uh, our engineers we work with are great. Design point, the local firm, they're wonderful. Yeah. They, uh, they propose, hey, you know, we could actually do a one lane a street that goes around a traffic median and get a free park out of this and have this like very, very social human centered place uh, instead of like a giant asphalt turning. And we also, we had to provide a lot of parking because there are parking requirements here for the um, apartment and the commerce. Um, And instead of having a big parking lot undermining a walkable place, we strategically located buildings to hide the parking from the street. So is hugely valuable to get to work on projects like this while doing academic research. And I wish that this was the only way anyone did it, honestly, because there's only so far language can take you. You need to see things firsthand. It's like, imagine someone trying to describe a sunset without ever having seen one, you know, like the, the, yes, the language yes. would just mean nothing, right? And so doing the actual work and practice just uh, grounds the research in what really matters in reality and makes it much, much more useful for other practitioners. Um, Chuck, you said that would be the last thing. Would, would you mind if I bring up two other quick issues or are we <laughs> Go time? ahead, man. No, go yeah. ahead. We're good. We're good. <laughs> okay. All right. So I, I wanted to just build on this this um, issue of uh, half measures or, or yeah. internal contradictions because so Tyson's Virginia is this really fascinating example. So this is this place that was like a downtown without a downtown. So in the 90s, it was, I think, the 13th biggest urban center in the country by its economy. And it was just all 
huge roads, highways, parking lots, single-use buildings. There was not a single park no, they, in sight. They nailed it on suburbia, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I always looked at it as this place where, like, you turn the suburban engineers loose and you said, build it as exactly as you would like it built. And they did, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it created a place that people hated. Yeah. <laughs> there was snarled with traffic. There was just no human friendly place outside. There was nowhere outside that you could go that you could just go, ah, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just all asphalt and retaining walls and uh you know the the blank walls on the side of big box stores so this this is the world you would get if engineers designed everything everything right yeah, exactly. and I, and i'm an engineer there is a place for engineers they have an important role to fill but th this is if you want to see like we turn things over to engineers go to small town america and go to places like Tyson's that were built yeah. by engineers and you get a machine that doesn't work. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, they suffered during the dot-com boom and they were starting to have office vacancies because people preferred to live in like, or work yeah. in downtown DC and they're just not being competitive anymore. So um, they uh, suddenly there was this big political support, both from developers and from residents to totally transform this place. And Tyson's is the biggest suburban retrofit in the world. The biggest example of trying to terraform Mars. The scale is unbelievably massive, trying to create like a downtown for like a big city all at once, right? Yeah. And they made this major multi-billion dollar investment in another raised rail um, example that, that would uh, take people straight to downtown Washington, D.C., and uh, just in some ways, they've been hugely successful. They've attracted, you know, is it billions, hundreds of millions of yeah. dollars in investment? Yeah. They have like dozens of, of projects uh, being built. Some very impressive, very attractive. Again, all very uh, tall towers. In the housing crisis that we had, you know, 15 years ago, they were one of the places that was largely unscathed and one of the places that kept you know, attracting investment and growing when every place else was stagnant and stalled. And right. part of that is the effect of Washington, D.C., the capital is kind of immune from some of yeah. these downturns. But Tyson's is to me like a massive bet, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it's right. It's all that's in right. ante. Yeah. That's right. And they needed to change because they didn't have any room to add anything more and, and they yeah. wanted to keep growing, right? So, but the problem is, you know, we were talking about building a strode at the scale of a community. And this is like the hugest example of that, like just implementing government interventions that contradicted each other. So they spent two point something billion on this transit. And then they spent another billion dollars on widening roads throughout the, the area, including directly next to transit stations. So there yeah. are stations where, you know, a eight lane arterial was expanded to something like 10 or 11 lanes, right? Well, in one station, the uh, crosswalk was removed and you have to take a, a bridge across the road uh, to, to get to the other side. Um, in other places, they did remove a lane, but we're talking, you know, going from nine lanes to eight lanes. Right, right. right. And yeah. while, uh, by the way, removing traffic islands, because I, I don't know why. Um, and so throughout the community, or or they add bike lanes, but they just paint it lines and in the middle of this like eight lane massive road. Yeah, yeah. And so people describe Tyson's as um, islands of walkability in these like 
rivers of just impassable carbonate roads and it's not just the major arterials even the like even the collectors are like eight lanes wide so it's just like by uh, cutting across the community all over the place of these massive massive roads um so that means that government was investing billions of dollars and undermining the government's own investment of billions of dollars you know making yeah. them less effective you know while building that transit they were making it harder for people to get to that transit and i found that a lot of the development that's happening isn't happening next directly next to those transit stations yet because those transit stations are next to these huge roads it's not a desirable place to build so if we're going to do this we have to make the hard decisions up front we have to decide we're going to do this in full or we're just going to be shooting ourselves in the foot and making us so much harder to accomplish one of the problems i found in tyson's is this idea that engineers become anchored to a certain kind of design so their version of normal is car oriented design yes and when they for example, reduce take one lane from an intersection so it goes from nine lanes to eight lanes. They feel like they've moved mountains because they had to like do all this work to rejig their traffic studies and find ways in the standards to justify this. So they really feel like they're doing this great work to make things more walkability, more walkable. And they can become quite offended if they're when accused of um, still designing car in a place. It's like, look at all this work I've done. From their perspective, they're measuring progress from where they started, which was, you know, just 100% car-oriented design. Where someone is anchored to a culture of walking and biking, culture yeah. of walking and so biking. Like, this is insane. What are you doing? Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> you haven't. No, this is still an eight-lane road to cross. Like, if we really want to do this, we'd right. have to find a way to make this like at least four lanes, and you know, there'd be some real sacrifices to make for through traffic for that area. And that means we have to ask hard questions. What are we trying to do here? And, uh, you know, I think that politicians need to be, and, and professionals working for local government, need to be more honest with residents about what it's going to require to achieve the outcomes you want. If you want tens of thousands of new people moving in to be walking, biking, and taking transit instead of driving everywhere, and you want great main streets that you can visit, you are going to have to uh, make some hard choices. And those hard choices need to be made up front. So people can acknowledge like we do want these massive benefits and we understand that it's going to come with some some costs. And and that's the the hard political reality we face. Well, let me push back a little bit. With Tyson's, you're raising the, the tension that I feel all the time which is when, when we live in the world of planners and engineers, th there's no problem that they can't solve with like a bigger budget, more money, better zoning codes, you know, five committees. Like, there's a whole process there. And if we say in order to transform places, we are going to need big top-down investments to kickstart things. I hear the planners, engineers, professional community going, yep, that's exact, that's exactly what we need. <laughs> Give us that money and we'll we'll kickstart it. And and for every Siri that you get, you get many more Tysons, right? But if you start on the other end, if you're like, all right, we're gonna take what we have, we're gonna build a culture of biking and walking first. We're gonna focus on that. We're gonna get somewhere where like we have eked out quite a bit out of this existing platform. Then 
if we're going to do that next thing, you have that bigger problem solved. You have that institutional kind of constituency involved in the city Hmm. that is going to put, in a sense, a limiter on how bad or how big the kind of all-in bet can be. Because I mean, with with Tyson's, you do have the left hand spending a billion dollars undermining the right hand spending a billion dollars. And, you know, you like, well, this is to me, like you say, there's pockets of it that is rather nice, but in a framework that is almost like disembodied, it's it's disorienting to me when I've been there for that mm-hmm. very reason. And and I have people I've interacted with who says it's like it's the it's the pinnacle. Like we should be studying this. This is a great example of what everybody around the country should be doing. Yeah. Part of what you're saying is that that very abrupt choice to go full yeah. in on walkability up front is just not viable until we do the incremental work to get people closer, which I agree with. I guess the um Well, look, can I say it this way? I'm sorry for interrupting. I feel like there's a lot of people who are listening who are like, I want a walkable community. And the answer then is to petition city hall and apply for a grant and try to find a big developer and hand out subsidies. And I'm saying, I want to, I want a walkable city. Then go meet your neighbor, start walking, start biking, try, try to try to fix that one thing up the street. That's real small that you can fix get a group of 10 of you to go bike around the neighborhood, you know, you know, like have a block party. Like there's all kinds of things that you can actually do that I think would be more effective immediately that maybe mm-hmm. would build up to the the other things. But if you try the other things first without doing the, the little things, you're, you're rolling the dice in a dice that I think is stacked against you. I think you're right. You've not said anything today that I don't agree, don't 100% agree with, but there's this tension, right? Mm. Yeah. So, uh, and again, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying that um, we need to uh, build up that that culture of people who 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 would be willing to say, actually, yeah, this like you know big redesign is a good idea. I do think that for well especially for areas that have precisely zero local residents like tyson's did or yeah yeah of it did that um you know there's a certain minimum action that is required and uh when you're in a situation where you need a, a certain minimum action to get that critical mass i was talking about i just think that uh, we'd be better off if we're uh, very very forthright and honest about any sacrifices we need to make yeah, implementing that minimum action so that uh, we, uh, we we don't get this problem of um, actually not fulfilling our promises because we weren't honest with people about what it would take. Now, um, I do think, though, that, you know, maybe it makes sense to, for example, start with a part of Tyson's so that people be a bit more comfortable with experimenting with like smaller streets rather than trying to do it all at once. I, I don't know. That's just an idea. But there might be other more incremental ways uh, to get there, or like Surrey did with starting with just one block and start to get that momentum, so people might be more supportive of um, more pedestrian-oriented design in the future. And also, there's this really cool strategy that actually Tyson's implemented, where they created a uh, team of planners and engineers that only work on uh, walkable communities in Fairfax County, where Tyson's is located. 
so that that team starts to develop the um, the uh, intuitions that is required for for that kind of yeah. design. Yeah, and that's an right. that's an incremental way too, where you're you're getting people used to this different approach. Totally, that's a critical part of it because I'm I get critical of the planners and the engineers. They're part of a culture too, and that culture also can change when they're exposed to different ideas and different thoughts and different you know d- different ways of doing it. But but it's got to be built up over time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that right. is how walkability can slowly reinforce itself over time and gain more and more and more momentum politically, institutionally, economically. It's it's already slowly happening. The yeah. value of walkable homes has increased far, far faster than cardiband homes since the housing crisis. Uh, and so I am actually very hopeful Um each one of these successful or partially successful retrofits is going to make it easier and easier and easier for the next one. And with research like this, we're, we're giving people the tools to get over these barriers, to begin the terraform Mars and, and really transform communities across the continent. Dr. Tristan Cleveland. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to call you doctor from now on just because, uh, you know, you're my friend and I can do that. And uh, that's pretty, <laughs> it's cool. You always have very practical, grounded insights. And I I love chatting with you because you are, in my opinion, the work that you guys do at Happy Cities is uh, (laughs) on the cutting edge and some of the best stuff being done anywhere. But you're also very thoughtful about how you go about it, and uh, it's it's just this unique combination that makes you one of the one of the funnest guys to talk to. So, thanks for taking the time. If people want to get a hold of you, how would they do that? So uh, you can tweet at me at Lurbanist. So French for the urbanist. Do <laughs> <laughs> uh, now? Do you speak French as well? Like, are you? Are uh, yeah, you... I, I got that Twitter handle when I was living in Montreal, but it's, it's right. a bit rusty at this point. There we go. And uh, yeah, you can find me on the uh, Happy Cities website. All my contact information is is there, and you can also look up my um, blog posts on strong towns and at happy cities um, and happy to chat about anything that you're up to. And we will, uh, we'll put all that contact information in with the the show notes. So anybody who wants to read Tristan's PhD thesis, get connected to him in any way, just head over to strongtowns.org and click on the podcast link and you'll get all that stuff. And, and let me say, if, if you are a suburban counselor or someone at the suburb anywhere in North America who wants to retrofit. My my biggest life goal right now is to turn, you know, these ideas in the page into practice. So uh get in contact because I wanna I wanna roll up my sleeves and get into this, making it happen. All right, friend. Let's not wait to do this again, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. So much to talk about. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City!
like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.